This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. If you've listened to any electronic pop music in the last two decades that's even slightly interested in challenging the listener, chances are that it's indebted to Karin Dreyer. Along with their brother, Olaf, Karin formed The Knife, releasing their self-titled debut in 2001, with each subsequent album celebrating the messy, rapturous, and uniquely human process of reinvention. Known for their audacious costumes that hid their identities and a deep interest in injecting academic ideas into their music, The Knife felt like an evolution in every way. 2013's urgent and conscience-rattling Shaking the Habitual, the duo's final gift before they went their separate ways, outlined the contours of a better world beyond the music industry. With The Knife finished, Karen turned their attention to Fever Ray, their solo project. The act's self-titled debut arrived in 2009 and found Drea ruminating on marriage, parenthood, and domesticity's effects on the soul. But Karin's marriage dissolved in the years leading up to 2017's plunge. In contrast to the monochrome hues of the previous release, Plunge was a nosedive into queer sexuality and politics, using club music as its diving board. Vulnerable without ever compromising on its demands for dignity and a sustainable future, Fever Ray's sophomore record clearly articulated the stakes while pulling the listener towards the dance floor. On their new album, Radical Romantics, Drea is more seasoned, reflective and assured, despite the constantly shifting ground beneath their feet. The subject matter is still heady. In a press statement, Drea says that they want to examine the myth of love and how to embody its best principles. As ever, they spin their abundance of questions into poetry that can be surrounded by catchy experimental pop, searing goth-tinged electro, and club music refracted through a crystal plucked from a meteorite. Drea reunites with their brother, Olaf, on four songs, and enlists Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross of Nine Inch Nails on two others. Crucially though, these tracks don't amount to a knife reunion or a Nine Inch Nails feature, but a bolstering of Drea's own unique vision. Last week, Karin Drea joined the faders Jordan Darville from the mountains of Sweden to discuss the new project, making art about love and radical solutions to everyday problems. So I, I wanted to, to start off by talking about a film that I saw that really resonated with me. It's Ken Russell's The Devils. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. I watched it just after listening to Radical Romantics for the first time. And, you know, this, this idea of the myth of love was swirling around in, in my head. And that film captured it in a very, very subversive way that I felt like resonated with your album. And I was wondering if you believe if art that looks at love from whichever angle, if it has to challenge an institution in order to be like truly thorough. 
I think if you look at the like if you look at the normative way of looking at love, I think like the normative way like how a romance myth is being told and I mean I can only speak from a culture where I was brought up and how we were like fed as uh, when when uh, growing up like what love was about and I mean for me I think it was sort of a revelation when I read uh, Bell Hooks uh, All About Love uh, when she talks about love as a uh, verb it, it's an action that it's something that we do that was a totally new way for me to understand what it is uh, to to at least have a definition I, I didn't really understand I think I I thought of love as a feeling more. It is weird because so many institutions are built on this idea of love, like marriage and how to how to have children. And um, it's it's a very strange way to build society on when you don't have a definition of what it really is that you're talking about. It feels like to to that end, radical romantics is a bit of a, a case study in new ways of of both thinking about love and feeling about love. Is that fair to say? Yes, I guess so. But it doesn't have so much to do with romantic love. I think in the end, I think it has more to do with like how to exist as a human being and how to exist as a queer person to find a space where you can feel free. It kind of surprised me a little bit to hear this idea of, of love come up so frequently when this album was, was being discussed because I feel like that's something that you've never really shied away from both as Fever A and, and your work in The Knife. It's something that's you've done a lot of very deep, very thorough dives in through through your art i was hoping you could just nail down for me a little bit just like where you saw the the pivot point that shift in focus that came with with radical romantics i think it has been a very like long ongoing process and i have worked with this album for like i don't know three years maybe it is just something that has developed and it is sort of what I felt was important to work with, to write about. But it, I mean, this old cliche that like to be able to love somebody, you have to love yourself first and stuff like that. It's hard to accept, but I, I think it's sort of true. Like you sort of have to become sort of a friend to yourself, I think, to be able to exist with exist at all first but <laughs> and but to be able to have uh, close relationships with people that can be i think quite a hard thing to accept and also when you finally do accept something like that you sort of have to implement it to your life i think that's something that i have been working with in in music what was the most treacherous aspect of, of how you implemented this, this new worldview into your life? Like, how did that manifest? I'm not saying that I, uh, I know this and I have done this. It, this is, uh, this, I think it's something to strive for. 
it's uh, like an everyday work. It's an ongoing process. And I think if you've had difficulties with these things, it's something you have to like relearn and work on like every day for the rest of your life. It's nothing, it's nothing like you like just switch and then it's all good and you know how to do things, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, it's something to strive for, I think. You're never finished. There is no goal. That's maybe the, one of the hardest things to exist like here and now and not be in the future and not be in the past. That, that is sort of the hardest challenge, I think. Perhaps love is inherently anti-goal. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to describe it. It's like, uh, because it's something that you do, you have to like do and work on every day. It's like your relationships, they require caring. It's really something you do in the present. Being present, it's almost become a privilege in a way, finding ways of becoming present and making the time to do it. Yes, that that is also a thing. Like within capitalism, within patriarchy, I think it's um, it's really working the opposite way than being present. So that is sort of a challenge. In that vein, you have taken your time between fever ray projects. You know, there's there's never a sense that you're rushing them or you know you're 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 jumping from one thing to the next. They you they always feel like they're very lived in. And I was wondering if the production for Radical Romantics differed significantly in, in any standout ways from um, your previous two projects, uh, especially with the, the pandemic breaking. No, <laughs> I, think, I think I work exactly the same way as I always have. It takes so long time for me compared to how other people work, I think, to make music. Because it's sort of a, like a research for myself at the same time to just find out. And I'm like with every song, I'm trying so many different ways to do it because I would like to find the best way to uh, describe something and to tell a story or to tell something. So um, I record a lot of things that doesn't make it to the end. But I, I would say in the pandemic, in, in Sweden, we didn't have a lockdown. I could still go to my studio every day, which was really nice. And uh, that was a great thing because, yeah, a lot of people had to work from home. So, but I could go to the studio. Olaf was there. Uh, and there were some other people working there as well. So it was, I think, really great because it didn't become this claustrophobic that I know happened to a lot of other people. I didn't have to push myself to finish anything because nobody knew when it was supposed to end. So it was sort of peaceful, but also a very strange time because you, it was so un unusual and so different from any time before. But I think it gave me a possibility to um, sit down and uh, feel a little bit more <laughs> what I was doing. You've been uh, open in the past about your 
struggles with uh, general anxiety disorder and, and panic attacks. Did the pandemic have any effect on those or your your uh, your mental health at all? Or yeah, I mean, I came home in two thousand eighteen. I sort of hit the wall a bit. I was a bit exhausted. I could actually take care of myself much better during the pandemic. I was I couldn't travel, so I mean, I was at home and. Um, yeah, it was like I could go to therapy. I also got an ADHD diagnosis. I had had one slight one, a strange one some years before, but that also, I think, really helped me to understand how I work, how I function, and what I need to be able to... Um, exist <laughs> and and also like what what do i need to be able to continue working with what i do like is it possible for me to go out touring again i didn't really know so i wanted to talk a little bit about the visual identity that you have for radical romantics i i feel like with each new fever ray project there's a a degree of precision that goes into the visual identity, which is unrivaled, I think, in, in modern music. There's one new headshot that you have. The character's tie is just slightly out of its suit. It's just kind of like peeking out forward, and it's it's just off-kilter, and everything else is quite symmetrical. And it feels very intentional and unsettling at the same time. So I, I was wondering, when you go into each new Fever Ray project, if you're planning these things out, that meticulously yes <laughs> i mean i work with an old friend martin falk and we worked on the plunge project as well and uh, we always collect images and film clips and uh, i think we are always in a communication about like what we feel is fun, what we feel is interesting, and like what what should we do next time? Like a year before the album was finished, we started to try to capture what kind of world this is supposed to happen this time. I mean, we had we had so much, and then we also we try we try out things. We have this like testing of costumes and makeup. And uh, so, I mean, we've done also for this album, we've done a lot of things that did not work out. <laughs> Are there any that stands out in your mind, the, the, the failed ideas? I mean, we were very intrigued by uh, death. <laughs> There's a, like an old Ingmar Bergman film where, where like death comes up to a shore when, where they sit and play chess and stuff. We, we tried some of that, but it, uh, it did not fit at all. But it's some, some stuff you just have to try out and look at and you understand afterwards like what happened. I, I think we are both very interested in film, so we really like to do the video projects. I'm very happy because the music sort of, I feel like I'm very uh, alone when making even, I mean, I do collaborate with other people, but I'm sort of the director and I have to make the decisions like when is the track finished? And then I'm 
very happy when the music is finished and we, I can go into the visual world uh, because then I have Martin. It's so fun to work with him. Yeah, it seemed like you were having a very good time with the the music videos that we've seen so far from the project. Uh, my my personal favorite, I think, is Candy. spoke a little bit about death and there's a scene where the office worker be they seem to be on the on, on the verge of a of an awakening uh, in in both of these videos breaking out of this very sterile office setting and into something you know a bit more vivid yeah i think in candy the the office person is like very very impressed by this pink character who they feel like maybe now now's the time that I find uh, find love but I don't think that pink character is not it's not a healthy situation but it's like you can have this feeling when you when you feel very strongly for something or for somebody or for some kind of activity but you sort of also know that it's not good for you. Like you sort of want to be eaten by this person and it's a, it would be a good, good way to die. It's probably not the best choice in the long run. I think that's uh, an underrated side of love, the, the way it can turn into self-destruction very quickly. It doesn't have to be big fireworks self-destruction. It can be, you know, the very slow sedentary codependent kind of self-destruction as well yes i know of that one (laughs) (laughs) but then it is not love it's something else that's also something that bell hooks wrote like love and abuse can't coexist which has brought a lot of clarity in my in my life but that that's also a weird thing with the, the ro- romantic myth that it's like it's okay to to have this like to um, to have abuse within a relationship for example and like in France i wonder i think they still have this uh, crime of passion like you can you you don't get as high a sentence if you kill somebody in uh, in a in some sort of passion uh, drama situation. So I mean, it is still there. It's it's it, those ideas like being obsessed and there there's so many very strange ways that is called love that I don't agree with.
the song, uh, what they call us, the lyrics, at certain points, it sounds like a, a message to the Fever A that released um, the self-titled project in 2009. Um, I caught a couple of allusions to domestic life, but it's put in a different context, like uh, you've learned how not to be stifled. So were you collapsing time a little bit on that song? I mean, it does have elements of um, sort of domestic activities. Yeah, a little bit like the baking stuff that you're supposed to do to be a good parent. I, I still think it's fun to talk about the idea of how, I mean, I am, I am a mother. I mean, my kids now are really, they are old. <laughs> One is about to move out and uh, they don't require the same care as, as before. And this thing that I think has been ongoing for me for the last like 20 years, it's like, how am I really allowed to do what I do? Am I a good parent? Even if I go on tour, I will leave my kids. It it is it is stuff that I have that that has been with me for a very long time. I I still don't really know how to do it. Really, how to combine parenthood and uh, work like the way I do it. The only ones who can tell is probably my kids. <laughs> Maybe they will write like really horrible biographies about how I, I deserted them and stuff. You just touched on a part of what makes um, the Fever Ray project so continually compelling. It's because each new project in different ways, we witness Karin Dreher learning about themselves. It's, you know, the old boulder being pushed up the hill back down again. Each new album, it feels like the, the boulders come back down again, but you've found a different new way of, of pushing it back up. One thing that I've talked to Martin about a lot, uh, because it's like both of us have been or are <laughs> struggling a lot with anxiety. It can be so heavy that you feel like I can't really exist in this world. There is no room for what I'm feeling and how I, how I function. Like it doesn't work at all in the way that I'm being told how I'm supposed to function. When you have had those experiences, I think every time when it opens up and you feel it's going away for a little bit, and it is like the whole world is opening up and there's so much, you feel so much freedom. You feel so much like just thankfulness <laughs> of, of uh, being alive. I think a lot of what we do is just to find, to create spaces where we can feel free and where we can work, where we don't feel so like trapped or dysfunctional like we do in most other situations. You've hinted in, in previous interviews that you believe that the club and, and, and dancing and movement 
are great ways to create those kinds of spaces um, of, of, of freedom and places where one doesn't feel so trapped. Are, are you still bringing that perspective to radical romantics? Yes. I, I mean, for me, music has always been a great help to feel, to exist, to feel free. I mean, that is something I strive for. I really, I would love to be able to create such spaces like when we go on tour. But at the same time, there's so much that I can't control about the room. <laughs> I I can't really say that about like clubs, but it's something that we would love to be able to create. I Yeah, I, I think more and more of music it can be a great comfort and just to like a thing to go through the day to be able to feel things. If you just manage to do a little bit of that, then you're good. I think my favorite line on the album comes on carbon dioxide. When you sing loves carbon dioxide, can't say it out loud. I'm afraid to lose it. Their melody is pure music. Some of it got perhaps lost in my <laughs> vocalization of no, it. No, no, it's, it's, I love voices of people. That is sort of the first thing I think about <laughs> in a person, how their voice sounds. Yeah, so that's about the voice. Mm-hmm. Love. Is it possible for somebody to make a, a bad first impression on you if their voice isn't perhaps resonating with you in some way? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think like it's probably accents then. In Sweden, there's many different accents and some of them are really, really ugly. I think it's just something that I'm curious about. Like if you're texting with somebody, you like you're an app or on, on on some app. I think there should be like audio on all apps, so you can like hear hear them speak. In that vein, who are some of your your favorite singers? There's so many. I was like my first ones that I really really loved. My that I found out about uh, by myself was like Prince and Cyndi Lauper. I mean, the, both of them can like scream very well. Do you remember the first uh, Prince song that you heard or that really resonated with you? I think like this, the Love Sexy album and like When Doves Cry and those tracks on that album was probably one of the first I listened to a lot. But also like Alphabet Street and those. I just found it in my attic in an old Prince poster that I had in my room <laughs> when I was like nine and he's like la- lying naked on a, on a, <laughs> on the flower, the love sexy cover. Uh, no, it's, it's some, it's some dark 
mm, black and pink, it's like smoky. And I had it on my wall and I was like, wow, this is so good. <laughs> I'm going <gonna>, to <laughs> <gonna> do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the biggest heel turns for me in the album was Even It Out. I, I feel like it, it captures so much about how you allude in your in your manifesto to say that love can transform you in not always very positive ways. So I was wondering when you when you created this song that's about the perspective of pursuing somebody who's bullying your children, um, did it give you a new perspective on what it means to be a parent and what kind of person you can become when you are a parent? The track is the song is sort of a, like a revenge. It's something you uh, that I was have been fantasizing about because in real life I would never go and like stab a kid, but I I wish I had. That's the been... headline for our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I wish, <laughs> but I wish I had been more. Uh, like thorough with the like the principal at the school and the teachers and uh, because we were in like meetings and meetings and meetings and talking about how la 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 how to take care of this how they were trying to uh, solve this situation but they never really did so it ended up that my kid had to change schools that is something I still feel very bad about. I guess that is something you feel like as a parent that you're never really doing enough. I mean, so this is a little bit like going back and try to make things right. And I think it's so important to take back your like self-respect when, uh, when you have been wronged. I think that is a it is a very tricky thing. How do you like overcome a situation like this? When do you when will you ever feel okay about it? Like it has to be some punishment for a person who behaves like this for a bully. And I don't think that it really it didn't really happen. Do you feel any sort of external pressure from the broad consensus that you are this iconoclast and, and, and visionary, does that perhaps foment in you a, a bit of pressure to always be un unorthodox and to think of very radical solutions to problems like this one, perhaps? No, I mean, I think of myself as a very, very scared person because I know I'm, I'm afraid of a lot of things. I mean, for this situation, I wish I had been more brave and to dare to speak up. No, but I mean, in Sweden, they uh, I don't think the people at my kids' school, for example, I don't think they would even care that I, what I, I mean, in their world, I'm, I am a weird person. There was a lot of like uh, homophobic and transphobic violence going on. And uh, I think they also saw me as a, a person that was a bit strange and weird and uh, queer, and they they didn't want to touch that. That is sort of how it is in Sweden. 
when did that start or when did it get worse i guess i think it has become worse uh, because like last last year we got a new government that is back, backed up by a, like a neo fascist party that has its roots in really uh, neo nazi movement and it's like a fifth of the swedish population who voted for this party it has affected a lot of things in Sweden, like uh, migration laws and uh, rights for a lot of minorities. That sort of thing is happening all around. I know it's happening in the US and it's happening in uh, all over Europe as well. It's not a Swedish thing, but I think a lot of people thought that we it wouldn't happen here <laughs> because we have this like... Uh, proud social democratic history of a very democratic society. But that that is sort of a, an image that I think Swedish people probably have believed themselves, but it's not really true. So it, it has been a great shift, I think. That was Karin Drea talking to The Faders' Jordan Darville. Fever Ray's new album, Radical Romantics drops this Friday via Rabbit Records under exclusive license to Mute for North America. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey, for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. And please keep an eye on Fader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.